every single one of us comes from a background or a system of beliefs or understanding of the world and culture and family and a religious system that helps us understand whether we're pleasing to God, whether we're approved by God or we're not. And in this series, we were looking at how Christianity can be different for you and for me. What are the claims of Christianity that warrants the risk for you and I, that warrants the risk of us being different? And every religious system answers three main topics. The first one it speaks of our destiny. What is this religious belief says about our destiny, about us being accepted by God here on earth, and then eventually if you believe in a, in a religious system that takes you beyond this into the afterlife, what would be my destiny and whether God would accept me? And the second uh, matter that every religious system attempts to answer is the question of identity, and we'll look at that next week. And the last week, we'll look at the concept of morality. Every religious system have some comments about morality. Today, I just want to address the idea of destiny because depending on your religious system, you may be aware of the fact that God needs to be pleased or God needs to accept you by some sort of mechanics, whatever those mechanics are. And uh, depending on that religious system, you may feel that God is displeased with you. Because I grew up in an Islamic culture, we uh, understood God or, ple- or, or we, we put God in a box of being displeased based on what system or uh, mechanics of the scale or the balance. We were in, in, in culture, then the idea that God is so big and He's looking down at you and looks down at me and it checks your performances, your good deeds, your good things, and your bad deeds, your improper actions. And based on your performances, He decides whether He's pleased with you here on earth and whether He's pleased with you there after life. And those people who are accepted by God, those people who are displeased, who, who please God, they are the people whose performances, whose good performances outweighed their negative performances. And even though I was a Muslim and I didn't grow up in a, 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 a adopting the Islamic faith, I grew up in a traditional church. And in our traditional church, somehow we were impacted by by the prevailing norms of our Islamic society. Because in my traditional church, we were told much the same thing. You did need Jesus who died for you and rose again. But other than the fact that you have to accept that type of belief, there were other things you had to do in order to be accepted and pleasing to God. And it was much the same concept as the scale, as the balance, where your deeds, whether you attended church, whether you participated of the sacraments or or the holy activities of the church, things like baptisms and confession and communion and the like, 
if they were the things according to your own good deeds that qualified you to be either accepted by God or not necessarily accepted by God. And I recall one of the holy images, uh, an artistic depiction of our traditional church's faith was one huge uh, artistic um, image of a ladder all the way from earth to heaven. And lots of people are attempting to climb their way to heaven. And you saw at the very end of the ladder, just before the gates of heaven, there was a, a, a fella that was falling off the ladder. He was just about to reach there and he falls off the ladder. And when you ask those people who are more advanced than you in the faith, and you said, what does that depict? They would say that you can strive all your life to get to heaven. But if at the very last minute, you've committed something that you did not confess or repent of, you are under the uh, potential or serious ramification of falling of the grace of God, displeasing God. So you could not ever be sure that you're going to be with God for eternity because the reality is whether you intended or didn't intend it, at the last minute you could stuff something up that would ruin your eternity and because it would displease God. And I don't know about you. Maybe you grew up just like Scott, where you were told from an early age that God is a graceful God and, and all that it takes for you to connect with Him or to please Him is to believe authentically in the person of Jesus Christ and His work. The gospel that we spoke about, the gospel of grace that differentiates Christianity from every other point of view, religious system, or paradox. But maybe like me, you grew in an environment where you didn't necessarily understand that the reality of Jesus is enough for you. That you felt that you needed to add to what Jesus has done for you to be pleasing to God. And you almost always looked at God as displeased with you. Because you and I, we don't need some system. We don't need some rules. We don't need somebody to tell us how much we stuff up in life. You, you only need to look in the mirror. And we can't even follow through on our own standards for ourselves. Let alone the standards that a holy, perfect God could have for us. So you have had to negotiate with yourself, with your family, with your religious institution, or just in your own reading of any religious background of a system that would help you connect to God in some way and please Him somewhat. And today, my heart's desire is to the best of my capacity to explain to you a system is that the Christian, authentic, biblical, Bible-believing environments and churches and Christians take for granted at times, and maybe you have too, of what does it take for us to be pleasing to God, to have favor with God, to be accepted by God, to be united with God who is holy and perfect and we are unholy and imperfect. How do we manage to connect with God as the Christian 
beliefs determine. And here is the second thing that I want to mention from the letter of Paul that was written to the Galatian churches, which is basically a Gentiles or pagan people who accepted the faith of Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, Paul was so irritated with that group of people that as we talked about last week, he didn't even thank God about that group of people at all. And that's unlike Paul. In all of his letters, ancient letters, he begins by thanking God for the group of people that he's talking to. But this time, he was astonished or marveled or irritated or frustrated with where they're at. Why? Because those group of pagan Christians, the people that were of non-Jewish background, who accepted Jesus' death and resurrection and accepted the gospel of grace, they were now being bewitched. They now being deceived. They now were replacing that gospel of grace where God comes without anything that you've done to, to, to attract his favor and he gives you supernatural power to change who you are and obviously to change your eternity. And they were being maneuvered by a group of people uh, known as the experts. They, like, uh, they were Jewish Christians. The, the technical term, the Jewerizers, they just go into an arena and attempt to convince the, the Christians, attempt to convince the Gentile Christians in particular, that they have to observe the customs of the Jewish tradition. They had to observe the laws of Moses. They had to abide by the dietary restrictions. They had to be circumcised. And they had to abide by the festivities and the feast days that the Jewish people uh, adhered to. And Paul was so mad by that corruption or what he called the perversion of the gospel of grace that he wrote this letter and most uh, scholars would tell us that this letter is all over the place from a a grammatical point of view. He would start a sentence and doesn't finish it. He will have verbs and nouns missing. He, he was just wrote in a, in, in a flustered way because he was so concerned about the faith of the Gentiles Christians who include you and I today because we are not of a Jewish background. And it almost as Paul could see into the future and say, if I don't step forward and a- address this dilemma Christianity wouldn't be any more than a sect, than a branch of the Jewish belief. So in, in, in chapter 2, Paul begins uh, what you would like an autobiographical documentation of his relationship with the pillars or the Christians in that city or in the, in, in the Jerusalem church, those who lived with Jesus, those who were known as the apostles, those who saw the, the risen Savior and they were of the highest status. And those Judaizers, the Jewish Christians, were attempting to say to the Gentiles that we come with the authority of the authentic apostles. We come with the authority of the real church that Jesus lived amongst. And they were saying, what Paul is saying to you is not true. What Paul is saying to you, he's deceiving you. So Paul here spends about 14 verses or so telling the Christians, the Gentile Christians, that he is no different 
from the Jewish leaders or the, the Jewish pillars of the Christian faith, such as Peter, John, James, and the like. And he says to them that when there were so many um, uh, chaotic accusations about Paul and Barnabas who were reaching the Gentile world with the gospel of Jesus, that Paul actually went to Jerusalem and spoke with those people who are considered pillars. And he says, I presented to them my message, my, my preaching, my gospel of your life. I presented to them that gospel that I've been sharing with the Gentile Christians about God's favor without any Jewish involvement or credentials. And he said that they came to the party and they said, we acknowledge that this message is the true message. There is no difference between the message that we share with the Jewish people and the, and the message that you're sharing with the Gentiles, the pagans. And they, they said, like, they shook hands and, and said, we're in it together. But then Paul says something. Even though they had agreed to that, he found Peter, the apostle Peter, to be at fault, to be uh, condemned. Why? Because he didn't stick to the facts of the faith of the gospel that is available for Christians uh, coming from a pagan per, uh, background or Christians who come from a Jewish background. And he tells them a little story about what happened in a city called Antioch. It says, listen, we were there together in Antioch with pagans who became Christians. And Peter was with us. And he was eating with the pagans, and, 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 and he had no problem at all about Jewish customs. He didn't worry about dietary requirements that were pre, pre, uh, predominantly reserved for the Jewish people. He was happy to mingle with the Gentiles and to consider them a full-status Christians, if you like. They, were, they had it all together just like the Jews who became Christians had it all together because Jesus was all that mattered to Peter. But then a group of experts who came from the Jerusalem church or came from the area where James was uh, almost like the head of, of that environment, and they came and when Peter saw them out of fear, he was petrified what they would think of him, and he removed himself from the Gentiles' fellowship, from those people who didn't have Jewish customs, and he went and hung around those who are Jewish people. And Paul says what he did had such implication over those who were there that some of the other uh, Jewish Christians uh, were implicated by that and followed Peter's example. So much so that even Barnabas, who was the main partner of Paul, was absolutely... Um, uh, tricked by Peter, and they all played the hypocrite, if you like, and they, they showed something that they didn't really believe by saying that they separated themselves from the Gentile Christians and started to form a group with the Jewish Christians. And Paul said, that was so annoying that I had to rebuke Peter in his face. I had to stand up and say, Peter, what you're doing is wrong. This is hypocritical. And amazingly, he gives the Galatians a little bit of uh, the speech that Paul gave to Peter and to the people around. And, and we don't know precisely how much of those verses are starting from uh, Galatians 2.14 to 21, how much of that was the exact speech uh, that, that, that Paul 
uh, recalls of his encounter with Peter or whether the first couple of verses related to that conversation and the rest relates to the Galatians and the opponents of Paul in Galatia. Doesn't really matter. The idea is this is the most profound and the most succinct, in a nutshell, the gospel according to Paul that reveals to us today what it's like to be accepted by God and what system we could have in place to please God. And I'm going to, to the best of my capacity, try to bring his voice out to us today. In verse 14, it says this, When I saw that they, that's Peter and, and, and some of the Jews that joined him and Barnabas, were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. That means by differentiating themselves from the Gentiles, they weren't really living out the reality of the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace that we spoke about last week. And, and he says, I had to stand up for that. I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. Like you were just eating with the Gentiles a few minutes ago. You weren't worried about this whole concept of Jewish tradition. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? How is it that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? It's like he's saying that we needed something on top of Jesus in order to please God. We wanted something on top of Jesus in order to accomplish and, and win God's displeasure. We wanted to win a displeased God. We win over a displeased God. He's saying that's absolutely ridiculous. You can't do that. You're acting something that you don't believe. That basically you're a liar. You're a hypocrite. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentiles sinners. And this is really, really critical to understand the concept of sin. What Paul is saying is this. The people who consider themselves the family of God or chosen by God or the nation that God favored or accepted were the descendants of Abraham. And they had a belief that the Gentiles were created only to fuel hell. They were no good at all. They had no chance of being in the family of God. They had no chance of being reached out. They had no chance of a hope beyond today. They had no chance of connecting with God. They were sinners. That means they were separated from the family of God. They had no relationship with God. They displeased God. They weren't united to God. They weren't in the family of God. It says, so we were Jews. That means we were accepted. We weren't rejected by God like the Gentiles. Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And, and, and look at this verse. This is quite an amazing verse. Uh, three times Paul says the same thing. So try to follow with me. He says the same thing about a person, then exactly the same thing about we too, and lastly, he says, no one. So he makes the same assertion, repeating the same concept three times. And the same concept is this. The concept is that you can't be justified by performing the law, but you only can be justified by faith in Christ. Look at it now with that um, uh, 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 lens and see if you can see the repetition there. So look at, uh, look at it as I read it together with you. Know that a man, so that's the first 
a statement that he's going to make is not justified by observing the law. So that's the not, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so the no and the but. And then he says, so we too have put our faith in Christ. So that's the affirmative that we may be justified and not by observing the law. So absolutely repeated it is just a matter of a mirror of repetition. And finally, he says, because by observing the law, no one is justified. No one is justified. So you will notice that in the book of Galatia, uh, and, and, and this is like a, a little letter, it mirrors the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. It's much the same concept, much the same thesis. And it all surrounds the idea of justified. It's justified by faith. And you probably read the word justified, and, and whether you grew up in church or not, you wonder, what does justification really mean? And this is uh, the, the, uh, the word that I want to mention today, because it's powerful when we find out what it means, we realize uh, why Paul is so full on about explaining that it doesn't come by what we do, but it comes by faith in Jesus. And the word justification basically means the act of God to declare us righteous. I want you to say that with me. I know we're with few people here today, so it might be a little bit uh, awkward. But why don't you say that with me? Forget the people. On, we should put the lights off so nobody sees that. But let's say that out loud together, okay? Justification is the act of God to declare us righteous. Let's say it one more time. It's the act of God to declare us righteous. So uh, this is really critical. So allow me to spend five minutes or so trying to explain this concept. This would potentially change your life and my life. The first thing about justification, it's an act. It's something that happens at once. It's not something that happens over a period of time. It's the act of God. It's like you're in a court environment and the judge comes and says, acquitted. That it doesn't happen. You know, you're acquitted over a period of time. You're acquitted. You're gone. You're finished. You're not guilty. It's an act. It's an instant. It's something that happens at once, like the judge making a statement about the, 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 the status of the victim or the status of the accused. It says, you're not guilty. That's an act. And here is the most profound word that you need to know, that the word declare or pronounce. This is not making you righteous. It's not about, hey, I know Peter is stuffing up and he keeps stuffing up with this particular weakness. I'm going to make him righteous. That's not what justification is. That's something we're going to discuss in two weeks' time. It's not about making you righteous. It's about pronouncing you righteous. It's not something that God observes and says, if you get 8 out of 10, bingo, you're, you're, you're righteous. It's not about changing your inner life so that you can be made righteous. This is about God declaring you righteous. But Peter, that doesn't make sense. Why would he declare me righteous if I know I'm guilty and he knows I'm guilty and everybody else knows that I'm guilty? I'll come to it. And Paul will come to it in just a minute. But he declares you righteous. That means in a right standing with God. That you're not separated from God. That you are all right with God. That God is not displeased with you. He is happy with you. Throughout 
Uh, this is such a huge, huge doctrine that differentiates the Christian faith. Particularly, uh, uh, we know about it all the more since the Reformation, which we celebrate 500 years since the Reformation, where people like Martin Luther and Calvin and others tried to bring back the treasures that the traditions of the churches has suppressed and even hidden. And they started by explaining uh, justification by words as alien righteousness. What does alien righteousness mean? People in, the, in those eras and even today in some sectors of the Christian environments and even other religions says that God accepts you if you are inherently righteous. That means if you stand as righteous, that you have something within you that shows that you're right, therefore God counts you as all right. It's almost, it's God examine yourself, God examines myself, God examines you, and then decides whether you're righteous or not. That's inherent righteousness. It's internal to you. But what Martin Luther said, true justification is that God gives you something that you don't have. It's something external to you. It's alien to you. God has something that you do not have and what we call imputes it into your account. Let me give you a, an example. When I married Susie, I was absolutely broke. I was living by myself since I was 18 years of age and my parents hardly had any money. I couldn't even afford petrol. I couldn't afford dinner. So imagine marrying Susie. It was brilliant. She had not much money either, but she, was, uh, she had a family. You know, we could go to her family and eat if we wanted to eat. You know what I mean? By the instant of me connecting to Susie, all of a sudden I had imputed to my account all that she had, which wasn't much, but better than I, what I had. Yeah? If you got married to, uh, you know, I think he's already... Um, is, is not available, uh, but Bill Gates, you know, if, if, if you got married to the richest man, you will instantly, I don't know, these days I think they have contracts, but in the good old days, you know, if you got married to a rich person, you instantly became rich, not because you earned it, but because you were married to them, yeah? It's imputed to your account. These days when I do marriage preparation, uh, sessions, I realized some married couple don't even mingle their accounts. You know, they check each other out first, which is another story. Okay, I, don't, I didn't have money, so I was very happy to mingle our accounts. But what it is here is the idea of imputed. It does not belong to you. You can't stand in front of God and say, hey, look at me. Ah, mate, I've been fasting twice a week. I've been praying my guts out. I've been doing some good deeds. You owe me. Because I internally, inherently have righteousness. I deserve your favor and your pleasure. It's like I sing. My mom will be happy with me. Thankfully, I couldn't sing and my mom was still happy with me. But truly, 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 you need to understand, I need to understand afresh today that your righteousness, your right standing before God has nothing to do with your performance and that's the distinctive of the Christian faith. You do not have to earn God's favor by what you do. You do not have to win over a displeased God by your activities. It fires me up because every other religion, it says we're going to figure it out at the end. Did you live 
to please God and do the commands and, and, and fix yourself up or you do not deserve to enter into God's inner circle of pleasure. The other word uh, was, was um, articulated by a follower of Luther and he spoke about the idea of forensic justification. It's a legal matter. It's the idea of us in the heavenly court God the Father looks at us through the person of Jesus and says, I declare you not guilty. I know you're guilty, but I declare you not guilty. This is justification. That means every time you read the idea of justified, it's almost just as if you did not sin. That's what justified is. As if, just as if you did not sin. You're declared not guilty by the courts of heaven. So then we ask Paul, how could that happen to us? How could sinful people do that without the law? Look at verse 17. It says, if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners. And this is, follow his logic, just few uh, scriptures earlier, he said that we are not sinners like the Gentiles, like we're not separated from God because we belong to the Jewish descendants. He's saying if it doesn't, it doesn't matter anymore that uh, we are of Jewish descendants, if we separate ourselves from our Jewishness in order to be justified only by Christ, does that mean we're sinners? And he says, impossible. Absolutely not that Christ be promoting sin or separation from God. So what he's trying to say, Jewishness does not make you close to God. Your Jewish affiliation and observance of the law doesn't make you affiliated to God. You just get justified by Christ and that doesn't separate you from God. Otherwise, Christ will be promoter of separation from God or promoter of sin. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. And there's so many interpretation about that. If he was speaking to Peter, he's saying to him, if you had already untangled the idea of Jewishness and you have been acting like a non-Jew, then you must have broken the law if it really should be staying or it should be rebuilt because you went back to be a Jew. If, if, if it was mandatory that you become Jewish and that you observe the law and the dietary requirements and all of that, then what you've done in the past by being with the Gentiles, you were a lawbreaker. There is another interpretation to it. It's saying, if I, attempting to break the law of God or attempting to misguide people uh, uh, to accept the faith only by Christ, am I then a lawbreaker? So it could be for both Peter and Paul. But then he goes to this amazing thing and he says, for through the law. This is crazy. It says, for through the law, that means through your performances, as through your achievements, as through what you've done. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. What the heck does that mean? You died to the law. Let me tell you something. Can you go to the cemetery and find somebody for speeding? Can you go to the cemetery and find somebody or, 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 or call the law against them? Once you're dead, the law is dead to you. 
once you died, the law has no capacity over you. The law can't say, okay, between, between your cemetery and heaven, we're going to charge you $10,000. Otherwise, you know, there's no such thing. If you're dead, the law doesn't matter, has no claims over you, has no control over you. And he's saying, I died to the law, therefore the law has no claims over me. To which we, we ask, how on earth did you die to the law, brother? You're still alive. How did you die? And that's, he says, I'm glad you asked. And he answers, he says, I have been crucified. Crucified, by the way, those who got crucified died. Yeah? So, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body now, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Look at that. He's saying, listen, friends, I died with Jesus. You died with Jesus? Man, you didn't even believe in Jesus when he was on the cross. How the heck did you die with him? You tricking us? He says, no, 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 no. I want to tell you something. You see how a, a, a verse ago he says that we've been justified in Christ? And here is the trick. You do not get justified because you believe in justification. You don't get justified because you ascend to a cognitive paradigm. You get justified because you're united to Christ. It says justified in once you unite yourself to Christ, once you say to God, I believe that you have supernaturally forgiven my sin, that Jesus died on a cross to pursue me, to change me, to sustain me, that I no longer want to live any longer for myself or independent of you, that I want to be united to you by the power of your Spirit. I want you to live into my life. I want to be a new creation. I want to be a newborn. I want to live a life that is no longer me-centered, but you-centered. When you repent of your independence of God, guess what? The Holy Spirit unites you to Jesus, and that's the marriage that makes you not guilty. You know why? Because if you unite to Christ, then when he was on the cross, you were there. And he paid with you for your own sin because you were united to him. You were in his inside. Spiritually speaking, you were in his DNA on the inside. And he died, that means he paid for the law. And do you know that there is, in the law legally, there is no double jeopardy. You can't ask for, uh, for example, if I got a fine and my wife went and paid $150 for my speeding fine, they can't come to me and say, you too have to pay $150. Impossible. Because my wife paid for that fine. As long as that fine is being paid, you don't have to worry about it. You with me? So if Jesus paid for that fine, there is no legal requirements for you to pay for it. Jesus paid for it. God wouldn't exert the penalty twice. So if you unite to Christ, you've already paid. And not only if you paid, you're now dead to the claims and the control of the law. Because Jesus lived the perfect life to fulfill that law. And he's united to you. Everything that he did went to your account. That's why it's written in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. It says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Was sin imputed to him. He didn't have any sin, but because we united to him, our bank account that's filled of sin became his bank account because we united. And he paid for that sin that was imputed to him. But you know why he did all of that? So that 
His righteousness, His right living, His right standing may be imputed to you. That's why it says that we may become the righteousness of God in Him. You have the same standing with the Father. He's pleased with you in the same way that He's pleased with His Son. That's why when Jesus was baptized, it's written that heaven opened up and it says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am what? Thank you. Well pleased. And God looks at you and says, You're united to Jesus. And in you, I am well pleased. And somehow, you need to take that to heart today. Because it took such an incredible cost for Jesus to unite you to the Father. It's written in that verse that we read, that he who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, there is no way under heaven that I have the capacity to convince you that Christ loved you personally. I wish I'd have that power. You know how, how people say, what superpower would you like to have? I'd love to have the superpower to be able to whisper in your ear and in my children's ear and the people that I love that Jesus loves you and gave himself for you. Now, we could be Christians for a long time. I was meeting with a, a dear person just a couple of days ago. And he was a minister for a significant amount of time. And was experiencing some difficulties in his life. And one of the counselors that was dealing with him, he said to him, your problem is that you need to believe that Jesus loves you. He was advanced in age. He has been a minister for a long time. He knew cognitively that God loved him. But somehow it didn't penetrate. Because you know what? When you and I know that God loves us, you will realize that Christianity is so different that it warrants the risk of you being different. There's no other faith, no other worldview, no other paradigm would say you do not have to please God by your own performance and achievement. It's already been done for you. Every other religion says do and live. Christianity says it's done, so live. And I don't know about you, you might have grown in a, in a church and in an environment where it's easy to accept the fact that God loves you deeply and that he's justified you. He, he, he declared you righteous because of your union with Christ. But for me personally, I didn't have that privilege. And in 1992, it dawned on me and uh, six other people in our leadership group. We were looking after the youth and young adults. 1992, we took them out on a, uh, 1991 or 1992, my memory doesn't serve me correctly. We took them on a camp and, and, and we created those little cards. It's almost like a, a, a fictional depiction of a ticket to heaven that we said you've got one way ticket to heaven. If you receive Jesus and, and you're united to him, 
you are guaranteed to. And we had an aeroplane, and we were pretty funky. It was probably the first graphical uh, description of anything religious that we've ever had. And we were so fired up. We went away for three days with so many young people, and many of them experienced God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And, And we came home, and hell broke loose. And every member of our traditional church turned against us. And for 12 years, we were subjected to unprecedented amount of accusation. We were called heretical. We were removed from our post of ministry. We were told that you're not allowed to meet with people from the church. And they would spy our house to see if young people were coming to our church. We would meet. They would bring some of the top hierarchies, actually the second in the charge of the synod of the church that we were part of, he would come and meet with us and absolutely blows our mind with how he related to us. And he finally, and they finally declared that we were excommunicated. And um, the religious group and the bishop in this city asked our relative, my sister-in-law, Susie's sister, to disassociate from us. We were never invited to, she didn't listen, but we were never invited to other relatives' parties for a significant number of years. We were looked down upon as the people who were trying to corrupt the church. And no hard feelings. I fully understand if I was in their position, I would have done the same thing because they were so burdened by the impact of us corrupting the tradition of the church that lasted centuries. I totally get it. But let me tell you something. It is absolutely worth the risk of being different because this doctrine of justification is not worth your cognitive assent. It's worth your life. And it's my hope and prayer That regardless of how many years of difficulties would come upon you, if you accept the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection, that you would dare to take the risk of being different. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the incredible courage of your servant Paul, that he withstand those people who were considered pillars and stand the majority that were so easily outnumbering him and that he stood for the gospel of Christ, declaring that it does not take performances or achievement to please God. And for my brothers and sisters today, my God, I just beg you, that we would get you out of the box of perceiving you as displeased with us or attempting a system of outweighing our good deeds against our negative performances. And that you'd help us to be so in love with the one who united to us. That we'll be so grateful that as bankrupt as we are, somehow out of your goodness and your grace, you united us with the richest, righteous one and we accordingly are declared righteous in the courts of heaven 
And we can be assured even today of our destiny that we will be with you, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. So for every person in this room, Lord, regardless of their religious affiliation or upbringing, I pray that you would absolutely blow their mind with the reality of your love, that you love them personally. And you're so committed to see them with you for eternity. And that you're pleased with them today, singing or not singing. May they know that they love in your sight. I pray this in the awesome, precious, matchless name of Jesus. God's people said amen. Amen.